Warning, 30 Screams or Less may contain spoilers about movies that have recently been released. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it, come back, and enjoy the show. Or, if you don't want to waste your time watching the movie and rather have two random horror dudes watch it for you, we got you covered as well. Welcome everyone to 30 Screams or Less, a horror movie podcast where we review horror movies in 30 minutes or less. Today we're going to be doing something different, not our typical movie review, because it is our one year anniversary. Somehow we haven't been canceled yet or people just stop and stop <laughs> listening to us entirely. So uh, apparently we're still growing and we wanted to do something a little special. Instead of reviewing a movie, we wanted to get Andrew Scott Bell, the creator of the Blood and Honey score. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It is so awesome to have you on here. And also, if you haven't heard, the intro music, also created by Andrew. So, Andrew, thank you so much for that. It is so awesome. We wanted to have, like, a fresh take for season two of 30 Screams or Less. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. It's it's a joy to be here. It's a great podcast, you guys. I, I love the idea of just, like, quick punch in and out, 30-minute reviews of of you know classic great horror movies and new horror movies so it's a joy to be here i'm doing great tonight i got a little bit of a cold but i feel like everyone in the world right now at least in the northern hemisphere is like is dealing with a little bit of a cold so i i mean i think i'm in good company sounds about right yeah luckily i'm not sick but i have a bunch of friends there for some oh, reason it's it's coming sick. it's coming it's, for it's, you next yeah oh well i mean i'm in florida so i'm gonna come oh, up north see, and be okay. like i'm dead i'm dead i'm you're gonna get pneumonia as soon as you get here <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm gonna like open the window and go oh fuck i'm dead <laughs> <laughs> so andrew actually it's a good thing you bring that up about the 30 screams or less yeah we wanted to do something that's like quick banger podcast episodes like Hori and I we've talked about this in depth where we'd like to just watch our 30 minute shows and just like hey if we want to watch more we'll watch more but if not whatever we go on with our day as opposed to investing like a lot of podcasts like to do uh, we were kind of talking about this like 90 minutes two yeah. hours or even yeah. more it's a chore it's a real big chore to like listen to a podcast for like two hours or more right. it's which i mean for some people it's fine it's good for drives but we wanted to make it a little quick so let's get into some questions here because uh i want to learn a lot about you and you know kind of figure out your like your process all that good stuff so let's get into it sounds uh, good how did you start scoring for films and television um i've kind of always wanted to do that um i've always well, not always. If I think about my origins, I've always wanted to be involved in storytelling, whether that was animation. When I was really young, I was interested in, you know, just like everybody in the 90s, every kid in the 90s wanted to work for Disney. And then I found my parents' video camera and I thought I wanted to be a director. Uh, but when I came to the piano and started to write my own music and was like kind of reverse engineering film scoring, which is to me was like writing music and then imagining the movie that it was for, you know, making up the movie as I was writing the music. Uh, I kind of really fell into that and became passionate about that at a pretty young age. Uh, and then I, it wasn't until I think 1999 or 2000, whichever, maybe 2001, whichever was the year that Gladiator was up for best original score, Hans Zimmer, Gladiator. 
I followed those Oscars really closely um, and became really invested because I had the soundtrack CD. It's a fantastic score. Uh, Oh, yeah, classic. Classic. It's fantastic. And so that was when I realized, like, oh, this is a career. I think that for me that was also, like, eighth or ninth grade, you know, when people really start asking you about not just, like, what do you want to be when you grow up, but, like, what do you want to do, you know, because you're going to have to start thinking about college. and You know, that's when, when those realistic adult kind of questions really start coming at you. And I... I'm very fortunate that I had parents who didn't say, no, you can't do that. That's unrealistic when I said that I wanted to be a film composer. So uh, I did kind of, you know, they they didn't they didn't stop me from applying outside of of state. But I knew I wanted to stay in state and save a little bit of money, you know. Um, So there were no programs in state that offered like a film scoring degree. So I kind of created my own, which is kind of like a trait that I think I've just had all my life like well if there's not this thing I'll do it myself I'll push forward my own way and I went to school uh, at a university called Christopher Newport University in southern Virginia where I majored in classical composition orchestration music theory with a minor in film studies so I kind of engineered my own film scoring path because in every film studies class the teacher would would kind of begrudgingly sometimes let me focus my studies on the music in the films that we were studying and not only I mean I had to study the um, you know the shots and you know there were certain assignments that I had to do but like for the final papers they let me kind of you know study the music in the films and that was just incredible so and then you know I mean I think that answers your question, how I got into film scoring. My first film that I scored was in 2009. Somebody at a film school in Virginia found me on MySpace and actually uh, uh, (laughs) reached out to... Yeah, they found me on MySpace and they reached out to like the head of my music department for some reason because I had listed where I was going to school. And that was my first time scoring film. It was for a documentary about crab fishing in the Chesapeake Bay. So I... I played a lot of guitar, I played my own cello, and I played my own piano. I, it was it was before I had, you know, at that time I was in school for composition, so I didn't really like, you know, I was used to people playing my music in concert halls, not recording it in studios necessarily. Um, so I kind of had to figure out, you know, all the tech side of what we do on my own. But as I warned you before this podcast, I can get long-winded, so I think I've answered your question. I'll stop it there. No, that's okay. We got time to fill. We're only yeah, we, like, like a few minutes. I didn't even hit the timer. There we go. Yeah, we're not going to time this one. It's fine. No, no. We're, we're just, <laughs> 40 just screams, keep an eye. 30 screams or more, baby. That's what this one is. There we go. Oh, yeah, that's special good. episode. Maybe like 30 screams or less if we go over your pizza's free. All right. Um, let's, let's, actually, I, I wanted to like um, touch base on that, too. So when getting into like music, did you play a lot of piano when you were younger? I know like. A lot of composers they start kind of playing piano with mm-hmm. and with piano you learn a lot of music theory that way and you can also pick up a lot of instruments because you know you learn all the range of with the keys whether it's sure a certain uh you know a certain like well tuning and like and tone and all these things so did you start off playing piano and then maybe try other instruments or did you start off doing guitar things like that Yeah, it's a great question. When I was a kid, I had, I mean, I still have, I have ADHD and my parents were just kind of like, you know, 
at their wits end trying to figure out some way to channel my energy because when I was younger it excuse me now it's now it's I'm a little bit more I think this is typical of people with ADHD and through their adulthood they kind of calm down a little bit maybe they fidget or something but when we're young there's just so much energy so they were always trying to find creative outlets because they saw in me when my brain was active creatively that I would calm and settle and one of the ways that they you know drawing lessons um, cause I was really into art and painting and drawing, um, dance lessons because my friend Kayla was in ballet. So they signed me up for ballet lessons. And one of the many things that they tried was piano lessons, but we lived in this small town and this is in like the early nineties. And, you know, for whatever reason, every person they sent me to was just this wonderful old ladies, but, you know, <laughs> teaching in, in the old classical way, like this was before, you know, like like I taught piano lessons uh, just out of college to make money. And even then, and it, so especially now, there's all these different methods to like, you know, ignite inspiration and spark fun and joy in piano. But those did not exist in the 90s, at least not from the people that I was taking lessons from. So I just hated piano lessons because it was like my brain was like firing like, you know, fireworks. Uh, and I wanted to play just I just wanted to like play, you know, and just learn it by ear and say, you like I, one of the things I would say to my teacher is like, can you play it for me? And then I would like listen to it and then play it back to them by listening to it. And they, they didn't like that. They wanted me to like read the sheet music, but that's not mm -hmm. how my brain was wired or is wired still today. So I hated piano lessons and I didn't really come back to piano lessons until later when I was like seven or eight or something like that around the time that Forrest Gump came out because of that soundtrack and that piano theme on the soundtrack. I came back to music on the piano, like learning how to play that music by ear. Oh yeah, that. Oh, classic, absolute classic movie. Yeah. So as well. I still know how to play it because like, it's like, you know, ingrained in my brain, you know, I sat at the piano for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. So I did eventually come back to music on my own, teaching myself piano. Uh, and then I played trumpet in middle school and high school. And when I got to college, um, they make you take, but of course, when you play trumpet, you learn how to read music and stuff like that. So, um, but when I got to college and majored in music, they make us all take piano lessons at a certain level. And I ditched the trumpet for voice because I wanted to learn, you know, I had been in wind ensemble, like all through middle school and high school and marching band. So I had a really good grasp of how to write for band instruments. I didn't really have a good grasp of how to write for the choir. So when I got to college, I just kind of dropped the trumpet and joined the men's chorus and then the chamber chorus and the jazz vocal jazz because I wanted to learn the ins and outs of like how to do voicings for choir, voicings for men's, like all of the different, you know, the intricacies and details to writing for voice that I wanted to learn. So so that's kind of my, my path in music. Because of that, I feel like I'm not a stellar and I played guitar. I was in a bunch of rock bands in high school and college. But because of that, I feel like I, I've spread my musical playing across all these different instruments that I'm like a master of none of them, but I have a good enough grasp to write for all of them. And that's why, you know, of course I'm a musician, but I see myself as a composer first who, uh, you know, writes for other people who are much better than me to play, you know? Well, you know, I don't think like anyone's really a master in anything because yes, they have like, 
better ability at like certain instruments, things like that. No one's perfect. There's always going to be one person who's slightly better. So it's like, it's never ending. Right. Like if you have just that experience in all these instruments, that alone is incredible because that's not something everyone can do. I mean, Prince can do it. Prince like knew freaking everything. He played right. every instrument. Right. Prince was so incredible. It's like, yeah, he was incredible. I'm uh, I'm very fortunate in school they they had a a course series called the techniques courses that was designed for music ed majors so that when they're te- you know if you graduate and you're going to become a band director for example and your mm-hmm. student comes to you and and says like hey I don't know how to play this note on the flute you learned how to play the flute at like a fifth grade level and oh all these courses were it was like woodwinds techniques brass techniques, percussion techniques, string techniques, and voice techniques. There were five of them. And you learned how to play like all the normal standard, like middle school, high school instruments at like a fifth grade level. So I hated the classes at the time because they were clearly geared towards music ed majors. Like all the assignments were like, you know, collecting catalogs and you know, ordering instruments and doing stuff that band directors do. But the the practical, like hands-on with all those instruments, like I just remember playing the French horn and getting a sense for how difficult the French horn is. And the oboe, like being like, wow, the oboe is a really tough instrument. And having just tried to play it and having to pass proficiency exams on like scales and like a fifth grade music reading level on all those instruments, trombone, trumpet, tuba, flute, clarinet, oboe, um, cello and violin and then all the percussion and like all those things. And then having to pass the scale tests and proficiency exams, like gives me a very basic foundational respect for what it takes to play those instruments and a feeling for what's how to write for them. And I'm like, I think that's the most valuable course. I mean, of course I often use my music theory training and all that, but I often, I think the most about those techniques courses, especially when I'm orchestrating and writing for different instruments because I've played them all, you know, so. Oh, of course. Corey, you want the next question? Yeah, I actually was kind of curious here. So when you started score, like when you were asked to score your first film or television show, do you think back to like when you were younger and what kind of music you listened to then and sort of take that as influence when you're making something of your own? I think I did, especially early on more consciously. Now my influences kind of seep through me I guess more more subconsciously as I'm as over the past 14 years I've developed a I guess a style of my own that is kind of like a crockpot of all of the influences and all the music that I've ever listened to and enjoyed but especially early on I think any artist doing anything uh first they learn to imitate and then start to develop their own voice from imitation. But I, those early scores for me, like the first one I told you about was 2009. It was very limited in terms of not technical ability, but like, like literal technological ability. Like I did not at that point have a good grasp of like recording myself. Um, I didn't have a sound library of MIDI instruments that I could play on my computer and record into the computer. It was a more classical background and less of the tech, music tech side of what composers, modern film composers do. So I think back to those early scores and it feels like trying to create something, create a sound, create something that is in my head without the ability to make it come to life the way that I know I could. And then finding a way to make it still Mm -hmm. sound good, you know, like, okay, well, I, I obviously I... There was a documentary I did in 2011 about the Virginia Tech shooting, and I wanted to write for strings and piano because that was what it was calling to me. But I just didn't have the the microphones, and I didn't have the technology to like 
record an entire orchestra myself or like the budget really. But because I was, you know, I knew all these uh, choir students, I could just get them to show up in a room and we could set up the microphones. Like I knew how to record a choir. I got my buddy to engineer while I conducted. And instead of a piano and string orchestra, we had a piano and choir and the choir was doing like oohs and ahs voiced like a string arrangement along with the piano. And, you know, you, you're faced with a challenge and I guess those early scores to me are more like I found a way through the challenge to make it still sound good, if that makes sense. But then it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to sound like an Alan Silvestri, you know, castaway type score, which was my original thought, you know, Mm -hmm. as we're saying, like, you know, back then I was really trying to just like imitate and learn and find my own voice. But then like accidentally, just by the sheer luck of like not having access to a string chamber orchestra, it sounds totally different. It doesn't sound like Alan Silvestri anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, oh. definitely. So, um, you know, it's funny you say that about like finding your voice and or finding your sound and things like that. So I don't know if you know this, but I'm a vocalist of a metal band. And the thing with me, I remember one time I was like, it was early when I was starting to do vocals and I had this like kind of sound and it was like, okay. And then someone said to me, oh, you sound like this person. I'm like, well, I don't want to sound like that. And then I completely redefined my sound and came up with like my own voice. So I think at first you kind of have that mentality, like you want to tailor your kind of sound off of an influence and Uh then you finally find yourself and then you're like, yes, this is what I work in. This is my style. This is what sounds good to me. And then, you know, people start loving it because they know like, okay, if, Andrew Scott Bell's going to put out something. We actually know what we're going to get is you know, something really cool, like in like different types of flavors. Yeah, I think so. And I think the voice, I think that's a unique, um, that's a unique example for what we're talking about. So I'm glad you brought it up because the voice is very particular and unique to each person, individual person. Um, and I feel like when I'm listening to singers, I can always kind of hear when they're trying to put an effect on their voice versus when they're just like singing and it's just, that's what their voice sounds like. And they're just singing through their own voice. I certainly, when I was the lead singer of like a, basically a Blink-182 wannabe punk band in like high school, I certainly wanted to try to sound like Tom DeLonge. But then by the time that I was in a band in college and we left school, we all quit school and, and moved out to San Diego and got signed and had a record contract. By that point, I was just singing like my own voice because I had had some training in college and kind of like, you know, had people who were pushing me to break away from trying to sound like other people. And the human voice is such a great example of that because everyone's voice is totally different. You know, think of like Scott Stapp from Creed. Like there's no one else that sounds like him unless they're trying to sound like him. You know what I mean? Oh, 100% correct. Yeah, I don't think I've really heard anyone sound like them unless they're trying to be like a obnoxious trying to sound like him. Right? Hell like, no. I, uh, are you excited about that reunion tour? Because I'm kind of pumped. Oh, I didn't know they were doing one. That's that's fun. Yeah, they're actually playing in New Hampshire next summer, so I'm debating it. I love. Oh my god, I, I love being in our late. You know, I'm I'm a millennial. I'm in my late 30s, and it feels like it feels like all the bands I loved growing up are doing reunion tours because now we're like in our late 30s and 40s, and we have our own income, and we're you know. We can spend more on tickets. And so like every band that we listen to is like having a reunion, which I think is so fun. I want to see Motion City soundtrack. I'm glad they got back together. I actually didn't know they did. Yeah, they're doing, they they just played in LA in like October. So I missed them because I was working on a movie, but yeah, pretty good stuff. I didn't know about Creed. So there we go. We're trading info. 
Yeah, you'll have to look it up and see if they're playing anywhere near you. I'm sure they are in, in L.A., so yeah. Yeah, All it's right. a big spot for it. So. Yeah, Andrew, let me give you a little rundown of this little tour, by the way. Creed, Three Doors Down, oh, Godfrey, God. Switchfoot, Tonic, Big Wreck, Big Wreck, good Lord, Finger 11, oh, God. and <laughs> obviously in different guests, like probably openers for each show and stuff. That is a, a real 90s lineup Yeah, right did you there. say Stained? No, I didn't oh, say stay. Okay, I said uh, that would be the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think they're touring also actually next year with someone else. Amazing, like a like a corn type band. Okay, okay. Um, but but you got me with you got me with Creed and Three Doors Down because that was it, man. I had those CDs so, at the same time. I feel like yeah, yeah. Um, I remember seeing Three Doors Down back in the day in like a guitar center or something. They did like an acoustic show in store. Oh wow. That was pretty cool. Oh, man. I would love to see Big Wreck. If anything, I'd be like, I'm going for that because they have this one album where I just love it. It's uh, In Loving Memory Of. That's the name of the album. It's fantastic. If you haven't checked it out, it's great. All the way through, just great. Yeah, I'll Never take heard a listen. Of it. Take a listen. <laughs> there's, there's some songs that are just so epic sounding, and with the music and vocals, it's just like kind of this wall of sound. It's really cool. I highly recommend checking it out. Nice. Yes. Yeah. So, Andrew, I got a, a question here about the the Winnie the Pooh score. So when the director came to you with that film, did he give you like an idea of what they were looking for for the movie or did he just give you kind of free reign to, hey, we're making a horror movie about your childhood, you know, loves growing up? Yeah. I mean, Reese and I had a lot of chat. We had a lot of conversations, but I don't ever remember him saying like, I want this. It was always like. I would have an idea and then that would give him an idea and then we would build on that together. So in that way, like, I don't remember him ever really dictating like a sound uh, and a style. It was like a conversation and ideas from both parties were coming throughout the chat, you know, because he's in England. So our time on the phone wasn't very. And the craziest thing about working on this movie, too, was that like normally I would have chats and phone calls with the director but like while i was scoring the movie reese was like literally flooded with interview requests from like cnn and like you know all these insane things like ign cnn variety hollywood reporter like he was always doing some interview so whenever i would say like hey can we get on the phone he'd be like oh maybe maybe in maybe in two days and i'd be like i can't wait that long so here just text me you know but yeah, we had I'll a send lot of clips yeah i'll send him clips and we texted uh, via whatsapp yeah i don't ever remember him saying like i want this sound i think one of the things one of the early conversations we had was that this movie takes place in the hundred acre wood and that i wanted to try to bring kind of like a folk horror sound to the score which like a lot of violins um kind of fiddly violins not like mm -hmm. classical violins but of course some ended up in there because it's a film score and there's more fantastical moments. But in some of the more horrific moments, it's really like, you know, I'm thinking of moments like this where. That seems like a kind of a full core sound to me. Yeah, definitely. Oh, absolutely. I was actually just watching it a little bit before I hopped on here. I was like, you know, I, I should maybe stop. And then I got in the computer and I was just hanging out waiting for Corey. He's taking forever. I love that. My favorite track on the record is 100 Acre Wood Chipper. That song makes me want to run through a wall. Oh, wow. Well, she's running away from him. So, yeah, that makes yeah, yeah. sense. Yeah, I love that one. Uh, Wait, which one is that? Is that the actual wood chipper scene? Yeah. Okay. Oh, this is. Oh, yeah. No, that's the wrong one. Hold on. 100 Acre Wood Chipper is right here. All right. Well, we got to be careful because Corey's going to run through a wall. Right. 
god. And then you can god, hear... I feel like the Kool-Aid man right now. You can... <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the... I mean, it's throughout the whole score, but this is one of the tracks where it's featured very prominently. I went to like a, a gardening center and I bought just a bunch of clay pots of different sizes and tones. Uh, and I made myself a little drum set of planter pots and played them like a drum set. So you can hear it right here. Um, you can hear it right here very clearly, but it's throughout the whole. Do you hear the kind of clay? I do. Wow. Now that, now that you say it, I can hear it. So yeah, and and because and why? Because Winnie the Pooh has honey pots, and I wanted to, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, uh, have to throw that in there. Yeah, like so I just had so much fun, and hopefully not in a way that is too obvious, because I'm always trying to find ways that excite me and that bring me joy, and that I can have fun playing with. Because to me, I mean, literally, not just to me, but the the active verb for music is to play. So I'm always trying to find ways to play while I'm writing music. You know, like we say, we play music or do you play music? So I'm always trying to find ways to be playful in my own music, but I never want it to be like too on the nose, you know, so I'll use like clay pots, but never in a, hopefully never in a way that is like, oh, he used clay pots because of Winnie the Pooh has honey pots. But like, you know, when I point it out, of course, you go, you know, hopefully like, oh, that's cool. I didn't pick up on that, but now I'll listen for it. You know, that type of thing. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, I'm so impressed when it comes to like sound designers and things like that. So like, for instance, the newer Evil Dead movie that came out, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, we, yeah, where the lead, she was actually biting a kid's eye. And it turns out that was actually Bruce Campbell really just biting into an apple on a microphone. Mm -hmm. and, but it just adds so much to that little scene right there. So hearing like these stories about what these people do just right. to make these sounds it's so cool and i had no idea that you used clay pots for that that is amazing yeah thank that, you no problem so, so with side note here i recently went to um rhode island comic-con and i wish i had the winnie the pooh vinyl because i met jim cummings does he know that this movie exists he does he does <laughs> know this exists and uh and there is a really Somebody sent it to me as if he'd sue me because I'm I'm just the composer. But they sent it to me like, watch out. But he was interviewed <laughs> by somebody and they, and they asked him about this movie. And he was like, yeah, I'm aware it exists. And just so they know, like if I hear Winnie the Pooh and it sounds even at all close to like my voice. or I don't remember what exactly he said, but he was just like, they better watch out because we're going to come for them. We're going to sue them to oblivion or something. He was very aggressive. And wow, I just... Wow. I love Jim Cummings and Jim, if you're listening, like I love you and I love your work. This has nothing to do with your work and it stands completely separate from anything Disney and Winnie the Pooh. And it even stands separate from the books. They don't exist in the same world. They don't have to compete for anything. They're for different audiences. I don't understand the animosity towards that some people, I understand that people are protective of Pooh because Pooh means a lot to them, but just like anything else in not only public domain, but just like the public sphere it means different things to different people and can be explored in different ways that doesn't tarnish what someone might enjoy about the Disney poo or the books that they read as a kid. Mm. Yeah. There yeah. Was, so um... I, 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 the, the short answer is he does know, I, I know that he knows about it. He seemed quite angry about it. I wish that he wasn't, but yeah. 
in similar to that, I've spoken online kind of in, in an acquaintance way. I know Jeff Zanelli, who did the music for the Christopher Robin movie with Ewan McGregor. And he, oh, yeah. yeah, he and I have chatted in a humorous way and via DMs on Twitter, like, you know, about how different our Winnie the Pooh movies are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that's the right kind of attitude is to kind of laugh at it and, you know. Oh, um, I wonder if he would have signed the record if I brought it. Oh, I'm going to say hard no on that. Probably I, not. I would guess no, but I guess, you know, if you're at a Comic-Con and you pay the money, he will sign whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just give me a dirty look as he's doing it. Oh, right, for sure. Right. Yeah. So um, this movie, yeah, this movie caused a big uproar. Like you were saying earlier is that, you know, the director was going through like all of these interviews with like different news outlets. Uh-huh. And I remember there being quite the uproar, people being like um, kind of on different sides of the fence. Some were like optimistic. Others were like, you fucking kidding me right now? Because those are people that like, you're ruining my childhood. And then the other people are like, let's see my childhood get fucked up. Right. You know, that kind of deal. So there was a lot of people like both upset and excited about this. And it sounds like Jim Cummings was the one who was like, ah, not into it. Which, okay, but the good thing is you have nothing to do with the voice stuff. You're just like, your music, you wipe your hands clean, you don't even touch Winnie the Pooh's voice the slightest bit. Right. So you're good. And it's not like he talked anyways in the movie. No, he just made some grunting noises, basically. Yeah. And I think that was intentional. Uh, like, a lot of people thought it was because of the mask, but the mask moves. So they could have had him talk, but basically the only ever film adaptation, on-screen adaptation of... Winnie the Pooh has been the Disney versions. So we've, no one has ever heard Pooh talk in any other version other than Disney's, you know, interpretation of what those characters sound like. So it's a very dangerous place to be in if you have them talking because, you know, the voice, the human voice, a character voice is a very subjective thing. And if they put on a certain rasp that sounds even close to what Disney's version might sound like for Pooh. That's a very gray area that like Disney could use to go after the filmmakers litigiously, right? All right. Um, And it's, you know, because it's like, it's very much open to interpretation. Like, I think the voice sounds a lot like the Disney version of the voice. And it's like, you can't uh, definitively, like you can with like a red shirt or not red shirt type of situation, pants Mm -hmm. and no pants. Like, you can't definitively point to like, no, the voice is clearly different, right? So I know they made that choice for the first movie intentionally to steer away from the voices until the very, very end where he like really sounds like a dying smoker or something you know (laughs) left and it's like you can't possibly you know think that that sounds like jim cummings so and i think that was a good idea for them because especially this first movie they had no idea it was very possible that they were going to get a lawsuit you know so oh for sure uh i also think it would have been weird you have this like ginormous winnie the pooh right and you would be like you left oh bother right you know right I'd be like, what? What's happening right now? Why does he sound like this? But, no, <coughs> right. I think it he, would be strange. He needed, yeah, he needed to have that low growling sound to him. Like you left. The like other thing type. I think, the other thing I think is weird. At least my been my experience because I read the book before scoring the movie. I read the first book again. Only the first book is public domain, and I don't like. For example, like I don't remember the words "you bother" in the first book. I think it might be in the second book. I haven't read the second book yet. The second book is coming public domain this January. 
which is why they're able to make a sequel with Tigger, for example, which has already mm-hmm. been announced. I'm not spoiling anything. No, uh, um, no, I heard about that. Um, so, like, yeah, Tigger, I think there was, like, a, a certain delay, right? So up until a certain point, you could get Piglet and Winnie the Pooh and such, public domain, but then I don't think Tigger was public domain. Correct. Yet. And then, Correct. okay, that's He comes in the second book. and But that's what I mean is that there's, like, a general confusion from and I you know it's nobody's fault it's just that the Disney version of these characters are so ingrained in people's ideas of the characters you know mm-hmm. people being like oh why don't they have Tigger in this movie because they're thinking of the movies and the show and not the book series that the original the ones the books that are public domain like people have asked like is Gopher going to be in the sequel and it's like Gopher is to my knowledge I think not in any of the books at all Gopher I think is a Disney addition completely to the character yeah. you know Similar to people wanting Tigger to, like, expecting a bouncy spring tail for Tigger. Tigger in the books does not have a spring tail. Tigger does not jump on his tail in the books. That's a Disney addition to the character. Yeah, I think Disney wanted to have that kind of fun uh, aspect to Tigger, so they just probably made him bouncing around all that I mean, he jumps around in the books, uh, in the second book, but not on his tail. He doesn't have a a tail made of springs, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So is that kind of why the first movie opened up the way that it did with them basically eating Eeyore because of the whole public domain thing? I think the reason they ate Eeyore from Reese's telling, um, I because he told me this and I've seen him say it in interviews too, is because it's live action and the budget was so low on the first one, they couldn't imagine a way to do Eeyore without having like, the, you know, the cheesy horse costume where there's like two people and they're using their uh, legs. Oh, yeah. They yeah. couldn't imagine a way to do Eeyore. And of course, like, you know, with more money, they could do like a job of the hut type of thing. But still, the money, you need to build that, right? Like this big Eeyore that can't move or something like that, like Jabba the Hut. But that takes money to build something that looks good like that, you know? So right. that so they were just like, which one should we kill? Let's kill off Eeyore because like they couldn't imagine a way in the budget, which I think is smart. You know, you're you're making movies under limitations, and so what can we do under these limitations? We know they're gonna eat a character. Let's make them eat the sad one that we can't pull off with the budget we have. Live action, you know. Yeah, he's uh, a Debbie Downer anyways. Yeah, Get rid of him. well, that's what I've been telling people. Like, oh, why did they eat Eeyore? And I'm like, he practically volunteered, guys. Like, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a way to go, all right. He went out. He, he basically went out like saying like, thanks for noticing me. Bye bye. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that movie actually had a pretty small budget. And as I'm watching it, it looks great for what they had it i think it was like a hundred thousand dollar budget well that's what yeah that's what everyone reported and i remember the text messages going out from the producers at the time saying nobody correct this because they didn't want it to affect box office numbers as if there's a big difference between but the real number is like less than fifty thousand. so everyone was reporting like less than a hundred thousand and we were all like in agreement that we were not going to correct it because we didn't think people would show up to the box office for like a thirty thousand dollar movie but that's really what it was it was really really low like thirty thousand pounds which i think is like fifty thousand dollars right um yeah that's what it really was and it was really just like like when we all made it we didn't know it was going to go to theaters i think our best case you know we were like dreaming big thinking it would become a cult classic on Netflix, basically. When we all made it, it was just for fun. And then it... Yeah, I think it's going to be a cult classic. Yeah, I think a few years down the road, it's going to be like just one of those movies where people are like, you have to see this. And then it's just going to 
develop this legacy. That's how I feel about yeah. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I think, I think so uh, too. Yeah, there's a lot of movies out there that are just kind of low budget, even though, yes, this is technically low budget, but you look at it, it doesn't feel like a low budget. I mean, we've all seen low budget movies and they clearly are low budget. Like you look at them and you go, okay, yeah, I could see where the budget went for that. So this, um, this looked great for that yeah like for thank that you kind of budget yeah, i think no i think that that's uh due to the credit of recent scott who are really adept at shooting things and finding a way to make things look great for low cost but also and equally as important is the skill talent and resources that vince knight brings to their productions when he works with them that's the cinematographer He's really talented. He runs the London Motor Film Awards and has he brings his crew, his camera equipment and his lighting expertise and he is just really quick at being like, okay, we're going to shoot it this way. Let me put a light here, here, here and here because those are the places I absolutely need it. You know, it'd be nice if we had like a cloud, but we don't have a cloud. So this is what we're going to do and we're going to make it look grim and dark and moody and you know this is what we have so this is how we're going to shoot it and this is how best to accomplish a shot with the resources that we have and he's really quick at that and so that cuts down costs when you can set up and strike lighting really quickly and get great shots and he's got a great eye for how to film things cinematically so i think you know and then the locations that they got were really really great most of the the movie was shot at this airbnb that had like like a twisted tree tunnel that they could shoot in and then like a fire pit with these airstream trailers and it's just, and then like a random like tree fort that they shoot at at one point and that was all one location that they got for like two days and just shot as much as they could there and then shooting in the actual you know historical 100 acre wood that the ashdown forest that the 100 acre wood is inspired by that's a really creepy forest and it adds a lot of depth if you just shoot it with a lot of fog machine you're just adding layers to this really creepy grim looking forest so i think they really pulled off a lot and i think that's that's kind of like the story of this movie is like it's really low budget but everyone who came on brought their a game and found ways to not show the budget in their work like in the music, for example, like we didn't have the budget for a choir. So I just sang myself singing all the choir parts like 18 to 20 times and layered myself with different voices so that it sounded like a real kind of Russian men's chorus in, instead of saying, oh, we don't have the budget for a choir, like finding a way to make it happen for literally no money. I was. So I remember. Nice. I was just watching this, and I heard that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so all that you. Was, that's, that's all me. You the whole time. Wow. Yeah, that's that, awesome. That's that really cool. So Thank cool. You. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's all me, and then of course in this scene. Did you put it in the context of the whole orchestra? And it sounds fuller and bigger than it is. You know, it sounds like 40 people instead of 20 people. Um, oh, it this, really does. Layering is... does so much. And I did that with strings, too. I would record the string, the violin parts, you know, on certain lines that are really simple. I could record and play. I'm not a very great violinist. I'm not a great cellist, but I can. So I, when I know that I have to do that and I'm writing for myself, I write very simple lines that pack a powerful punch, but they're simple and hopefully memorable, but I can play them, right? So, and then same on the trumpet, like I don't have the chops I used to in high school, but I can 
play it a couple of times and t- pick the good takes, you know? So a, a section yeah. like this has me playing trumpet and violin and singing. And when you add those live instruments with the computer mock-up, we call it a mock-up with the computer sounds, it makes the whole thing feel real because there's a couple of real elements that our ears like gravitate towards. <laughs> I love the big drums, the big drum sound. So I lied, that's not the part that has the trumpet, um, but there is a part over here that has a trumpet. Let me go to in which Pooh tries ride sharing. I play the trombone (laughs) and the trumpet and the violins on this part. Let me fast forward a little bit. Here it is right here. Okay, so the ba-dum, ba-dum, that's me on the trombone playing clusters. And then the is me on the trumpet. And there's a video online. I think I put it on my YouTube or somewhere. It's on TikTok maybe. Well, maybe not TikTok, but on my Instagram too, I think, showing me playing along. So oh, I love, I that, lo- part I love that so much. This slow build, it's so evil. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> It's just so menacing. It's it's fantastic. It's uh that's actually when we reviewed uh Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey, that was the I think the thing we were praising about most in the movie was the score. And it's amazing to hear all the little intricacies of the music just by talking to you. It's, it's so awesome. Yeah, thank yeah. You. It's like one of our one of our things that we talk about a lot in our episodes is we pick up on like music scores. Like I collect vinyls. Like just music scores is pretty much all I collect. Yeah. And, and Disney scores. That's like my favorite thing in the world. And yours for Winnie the Pooh is like clearly like top five for me of everything wow. I've ever heard. Wow. Thank and you. I have a sh- I have a, I have a huge collection. I'm not even exaggerating. Thank you. It, it's, it's go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off. No, here. no, that means it means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Corey's got quite the uh, collection. You know, he's got all sorts of stuff. I only have a few vinyls. I listen to most of my scores on Spotify, for instance, but I'll listen to it throughout the day. You know, just as I'm working, I'll have it on in the background. It just, it fills up all that noise that I don't need to just focus. I love it. It's great. I collect scores on some on vinyl. Uh, you know, if it's like a cool pressing that I think has like great artwork or something, but meat and potatoes where I really collect my soundtracks are on CD, especially orchestral soundtracks, like the clarity of a CD, you know, not having the white noise and like the really quiet parts of a score is really nice. But then also you have a little bit of a wider range in terms of like what the CD can produce and play. It's a little bit wider and, and more clear and the higher and lower frequencies. But also like a CD, like I just bought La La Land Records, three disc presentation of Hook. And it's like every single second of music that's in that movie that is oh, that's cool. like near impossible to get on even a two LP or three LP vinyl pressing. So I, you know, you can fit so much more music on a CD. So there's a couple of reasons I like CDs, but, and I feel like they'll come back eventually, but for right now it's great. Cause I can go to like Amoeba music in Hollywood and buy like, like a deluxe matrix edition from like 1999 for like $4. I love it. Whoa. Oh yeah. <laughs> cause no, cause nobody's buying CDs. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. You guys keep buying your 40, 50, $60 vinyls. I'm going to get the same soundtrack on CD used in pristine quality for like six bucks, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I feel like you and I might be on the same page about this then is that sure streaming's nice and all, and it's great for convenience, right? But 
CDs are untouchable quality wise. I'd rather have a CD over streaming any day, but I mean, I don't even have a CD player anymore. I think I had a to CD, buy an external one. I think the CD was the pinnacle of music presentation in terms of like home audio listening. I think the compact disc was like the peak because then after that it was MP3s and stuff and things started to go down in quality, but then you could store more on a hard drive, your iPods, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. It was more about like quantity over quality, but the CD right. I think was like the best that home audio listening ever sounded to me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of it's uncompressed. Yep. You know, like you were it's, saying, it's uh, uncompressed with wave. Yep. Yep. Uncompressed wave. But then when you start doing MP3, then you're compressing a little bit to fit because now you're talking wave files, which are like maybe, I don't know, three times 30... as big as the bigger MP3s. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. They're like, it's three times bigger, maybe even more. Yeah. But you don't lose out on those frequencies. Right. That are so important because like, for instance, my band stuff, our stuff was clearly made for listening to on CD or some sort of high quality audio. Right. Because when you listen to it on streaming, for instance, there's things you're completely missing that we wanted to throw in there on right. those little frequencies and you lose it. Right. And you're right. I think eventually CDs are going to come back just like vinyl came back. We're all going to just go back in circle. Right. And then right. people will be like, oh yeah, streaming's nice, but I like downloading MP3s and it's just going to circle. It's going to keep going. Right. Like, exactly. And you know what? A lot of bands are actually putting out uh, cassette tapes now. I know. That's why like, I think CDs will be back eventually because, uh, you know, cassette tapes are kind of kind of the hip new thing right now that people are doing. And don't get me wrong. Cassette tapes are cool, but I don't think they sound great. They do not. They don't hold up either. After a while, those things start to uh, lose quality for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, I have Apple Music because, um, well, one, Spotify doesn't pay their artists for streams unless you break a certain barrier for how many streams you get per month then they start yep. paying so that's a and that's a recent development but then also too at the time that i switched to apple apple was offering lossless audio for free and spotify i think was an upgrade you had to pay for the hd whatever and i you know I'm happy to pay for, it's kind of like a write-off for me because anytime a director says like, oh, have you heard this score or have you heard this piece of music by this artist? You know, I need to be able to go and listen to it. Uh, and I don't always want to do so on YouTube or something, right? So for me, uh, streaming apps are really beneficial because you have almost everything at your fingertips. And that's great for me for a business, you know, expense. But to me, there's nothing like owning the music and feeling like I have it forever and that's for me that's like a compact disc or a vinyl there's some that i have on vinyl some that i have on cd some that i have both you know so oh absolutely it's uh it's cool to just have that tangible item in hand i which think I so think yeah. is another reason why people love collecting vinyls too because it's just like it's more of an art piece when it's like that big you can hang it on your wall and just be like well i mean to an extent probably frame the thing but you know you put it up on your wall and you're like look at that thing right or you play it it's really that's cool to look at and hold that's kind of like me. I have several vinyls in my office that I've like display pieces that I framed. Like I have a George Carlin record that's signed. Wow. I have, that's amazing. I have, yeah, I know. My friends gave it to me as a gift. I don't know how they got it. Wow. But, what kind um, of friends are these, Corey? Hook me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also have I have a Ninja Turtles vinyl from the first movie that I've, I got from New York City Comic Con. So it's like a shredder variant. So it's all gray and oh, like cool. a maroon color. But I've had it signed by different artists and stuff that I've met throughout the years, including Kevin Eastman. And Peter Laird oh, and all wow. kinds of other people. So, and I, and I also have a Taylor Swift vinyl on my wall that's signed. But. Oh wow! Okay, now we're <laughs> talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I think the one thing about vinyl that 
is unique about it to me that I love about it is that it's more, um, it requires more participation from the listener than almost every other form of, of media or mm-hmm. audio listening, home listening media in that even if it's like the entire score, like a CD on my CD player upstairs, it's there's five discs and I could like, I put all three hook CDs in and it will play start to finish all three discs. But if I had that on vinyl, I'd have to kind of stick around, you know, I'd have to be in the room when, when one side and then you flip it and you, and you're, so you become an active participant in the listening process and it's, it's less of a passive experience and that's one thing that happened when we got ipads or ipods and then now on our phones and streaming apps is that music it becomes more passive and that you you put it on and you go and you do stuff but with vinyl you kind of have to stick by you know stay in the room kind of nearby at least if you know it's about to end and then the other thing that happens that like doesn't happen on cd like if you buy like the beatles abbey road is like the perfect example of what i'm talking about if you buy that on cd she's so heavy i want you right yeah. The end of that song is like this huge, huge, massive jam that literally like, you know, the story is they ran out of space on the vinyl. So the A side just cuts out, not like in the middle of a song, like at the end of a measure, but like in the middle of a measure, in the middle of the beat, you know, like it just stops. She's so heavy. It's just like going and going and going. And it's like so loud. And when it cuts out, that's the end of side A. And your record player stops and the needle moves. And if you're like stoned or you're like really jamming into it, (laughs) the silence of that moment becomes louder than the music was, you know? Oh, absolutely. And then you get like, you're like, whoa, it's so quiet. And you have to get up and flip the record. And then you flip the record to like, you know, here comes the sun or whatever the one is next. But on CD, it just keeps plowing through and you miss that experience, which I think they kind of intended, which was like loud silence and making people like, because like I I first experienced this in college and I was just like sitting, listening to my record and like totally melting into my chair. And then the silence was deafening. And then I was like, I have to stand up and flip the record. I don't, I don't want to get up. Like I totally melted into my chair, but on a CD or whatever, it just keeps playing and it totally doesn't have the same effect. You know, and then you it's just like keep ju- melting. <laughs> right, it's right. a jump scare. Yeah, it almost it's is a jump scare because you're just like, because <laughs> even as even as many times as I've listened to it, like hundreds, I can still never predict when it's going to stop. It just stops. And I'm like, oh, there it was. You know, it's like jarring. You know what album does that for me? Deftones Around the Fur. They have this secret track that's like 26 minutes into like the last song. And like, you just forget, like, you know, the music stops and you're just hanging out doing something. All of a sudden it just kicks in and it jump scares you. Yeah, yeah. I love it though. It's uh, it's great. So uh, I don't think we're going to take up too much more of your time. We probably just have two more questions. Sure. Uh, if that's okay. Um, well, I took you guys actually, on a tangent, so I feel bad. So don't don't worry about it. I, I took, no. Like, no, it's not on a huge like seed compact <laughs> disc tangent. So ask whatever questions no, we, you have. It's, it's totally fine. Andrew, we, love it. we went on a tangent about porridge once for <laughs> what seems like minutes. For I think I had to cut out a bunch of it because I was like, we're just talking 10 minutes about porridge. Love this isn't it. a horror podcast anymore. This is a, a food podcast. It happens frequently with us. Okay, okay that's, that's good. So no worries. Um, well, considering how this is a horror movie podcast, do you have a favorite horror movie? That's a great question. Uh, it's really hard to pick. I think for me as a composer, my favorite horror movie is psycho because that bernard herman score really kind of like defined everything that we do for like you know 50 60 plus years since 
right? Mm -hmm. The way that he wrote that music is like, you know, became the definitive orchestral sound moving forward. And I just love that too. And Bernard Herrmann is a huge influence on my writing and my sensibilities. So I'd say Psycho, but like I fell in love with horror from watching Insidious in movie theaters. Oh, uh, I love that series. It's so, the Fantastic. first one, I mean, I love all of them. I love the, uh, was it the second one where they like revisit events in the first one? Yeah, yeah. So early on, this is like, I guess 2011 or something Insidious came out, I think. 2010, 2011. You might be right. I was, uh, I was uh, a part of a team that was making a 48-hour film it's a film for the 48-hour film festival, which if you've never heard of it, you basically like you show up on a Friday night at like 5 p.m. and everybody gets assigned a genre, a line of dialogue, a character name and like a prop or something like that. Right. So and, that, and they do that so that they make sure that nobody like wrote their script ahead of time. Right. So you have to right. include you don't even know what genre you're getting. So you definitely can't write ahead of time. And then so so what happens that first night is everyone gets together and they like with this line of dialogue prop character name, genre, they have to write their script. So they write it the first night, Friday night, and then maybe Saturday they're shooting. And then like Saturday night overnight, they're editing. And then they have to deliver by 5 p.m. on Sunday. And then I guess like they do a, a showing or something like, I don't, you know, whatever it is, it's like 48 hours. So I think it is by 5 p.m. And then they go and they watch it all on like Monday or something like that. And so I was part of a team. So I'm just sitting around twiddling my thumbs because they're not ready for me to score this picture until like Sunday morning best. Right. So, and then, but then it's due at five. Right. So I really only have a right. couple of hours. It was a marathon. I've only done it a couple of times. It was fun back then. I don't think I want to do it ever again, but this one, we got horror genre and I didn't really know much about horror. It's not that I wasn't interested in it. Like I just wasn't exposed to it much as a kid. So I was like, well, let's like me and my recording engineer at the time, uh, Kevin, I was using his studio. He was letting me use his studio. We were just like, what should we do? We should, well, well, let's go. It was Friday night. So we were like, let's go see this horror movie. Let's see what, there's always a horror movie playing. So let's see what it is and go see it. And then all Saturday we'll like record sounds. We'll sneak into the college and record like instruments and cool, weird, crazy sounds that we can then on Sunday hastily put together to create a score from. Right. Uh, so we went to go on Friday night. We went to go see Insidious and I'll never forget this moment. And it's like the most famous jump scare in that movie. If I say that, you probably know which one I'm talking about. I have a feeling I know which one. Yeah. The red face. Yeah. Behind uh, Patrick Wilson. Exactly. Or whatever That's his name. the yeah. one. Perfect. I think it's the most famous in like the entire series. It's so effective. And a lady, a couple of rows in front of us had this giant bucket of popcorn and she was so, we were all scared. Everybody was so scared by it. We all jumped. We all, people screamed, but she screamed, but like held onto her popcorn in a way that like she jumped, but didn't like throw her popcorn, but all the popcorn <laughs> flew out of her bucket and like in front of the screen, in front of everyone's view. What a waste. <laughs> right, right. But, but <laughs> you ain't eating that stuff on the floor. Forget right. it. Right. It's, it's done. I, you know, I hope she got a free refill, but I remember the feeling of like, you know, endorphins flowing through your body because of the scare and then like an overload of endorphins because the entire theater laughed with and she stood up and took a bow and we all clapped <laughs> and it was like this huge moment of like you know you, you think you go to a movie theater and you think you're experiencing a movie by yourself but you're not you're experiencing it even if you don't all applaud the popcorn lady you're still experiencing it with others and that moment for me was like the reveal of the power of horror and that we all like got scared and then laughed and then like 
built a community for like another 45 minutes. And then we all went our separate ways. Other genres do something similar where, you know, we laugh together or we're thrilled together or we cheer together at like Avengers Endgame. But horror is the most visceral and like, to me, impactful way of experiencing things with others because... It's just so raw and exciting. And that was the first time I experienced that. So Psycho is my favorite. But then, you know, I got to tell that story of Insidious because it's such a, it was such a joyful experience in theaters to see that movie. Yeah, you're I'm, right. Because I just recently saw. Uh, have you seen Terrifier 2? No, I haven't seen either of the Terrifier movies, but they're certainly on my list. OK, so I don't know if you know, but the second movie just returned to theaters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. It was yeah. in September. So my brother and I went to go see it. And I've seen the movie before on like Shudder, but I'd never seen it in theaters. And there, there's a certain scene in that movie that triggers a reaction from everyone every single time you see it. Uh, we, and, I already know. I already know. <laughs> All I'll say is salt and bleach. Oh, oh, God. But yeah, I know what you're talking about because there were certain people in that theater who hadn't seen the movie yet and were freaking out. Oh, man. That's awesome. But yeah, I love going to the movies. Not even for just that, but you know, you have this wall of sound, like the giant screen everything like that i feel like it's something that a lot of people kind of take for granted now like they just go oh you know what i'm gonna stay home and just watch my movies there but you miss out on that experience right that, right like, like with the horror community there's a close-knit community and everyone's in there all together uh, you know they all go and see the classic films things like that i love going to the movies yeah i wish like more people did it yeah, they don't do it now. It's, it's almost like Spotify, right? Or like streaming. It's convenience right. over I feel like, quality. I feel like COVID had a lot to do with it. Yeah, for sure. And that's the yeah, thing absolutely. that I think like every three months, some entertainment magazine writes the same article again, which is like, horror is back. But like it never went away. It's one of the strongest genres. It's one of the easiest bets for studios to make because the genre is the star. You don't have to get Tom Cruise and F-16s to get people in seats. You just get a great premise and some great scares and people will, word of mouth, will go to see that movie in droves. So, you know, horror never went away. And in fact, like to me during the pandemic horror kept the movie theater experience alive via drive-ins we went to see drive-in movies and it was always a horror movie doing really great at drive-in movie theaters across america during covid in 2020 the summer of 2020 peak covid right people were going finding drive-in movie theaters pop-up drive-ins and it was always a horror movie like um uh oh my god what is the movie with um it starts with an r that was the one that was the big one that summer for me um God, it was about the woman. The It was kind of like loosely about Alzheimer's. Corey, you got anything? I know what he's talking about. You know what I'm talking oh, about. Talking too? But we saw that movie. It's an incredible movie. We saw that in a drive-in. Like horror movies kept drive-ins open because they would play like old horror movies and then pack the parking lot. You know, and that's that just to kind of bring it full circle. Like that's what I loved about working on Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey is that every time I saw it in a theater with an audience, there were people laughing. There were people cheering. There were people like screaming and yelling and it was like uh, a really engaged audience. And that's like the way to see this movie. Some people, I think, see it at home or like illegally download it and see it at home or now they see it yeah. on Peacock. And, you know, they're like, oh, that was a cool movie or I hated that movie. That movie sucked. But if they had seen it in an audience, you know, does a movie suck if like you think like, man, that movie wasn't great, but I had a lot of fun. Well, then was it? great because i think yeah, yeah. Uh, anyways I, I you know i don't you don't have to see the movie in a big theater and cheer along to enjoy a great movie 
But that was certainly something I enjoyed as being a participant and somebody who was part of making that movie was to hear audiences like engage with it that you don't get at home unless you have like, you know, 10 people come over to your house and you're all like making popcorn and drinking beer or something, uh, which people do for this movie, too. So. I hope it continues. Uh, I think that was the movie Relic. Relic, yes. Okay. Yeah, that movie did oh, okay. gangbusters during the pandemic. Uh, they really turned it around. I feel like it had a limited release planned in theaters, and then because everything shut down, it went to all these drive-ins and did better than it maybe would have done normally, right? Right. Because there were no other movies, you know, coming out but indie movies at that time. Like studios had shut down productions and stuff. And so indie horror like carried us theatrically in drive-ins through the pandemic for sure. And Terrifier, I think was one of them, right? Terrifier came out. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifier Terrifier one was 2019, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. No, no, it was right about the same time. Yeah. I just remember maybe it was like re-released as things were like opening back up. Oh no, it was 2016 was the first one. Well, maybe it was re-released. I just have a memory of it, you know, being like, I just, I have this memory and Winnie the Pooh is like one of those things where movies studios are putting their mid to low budget movies on streamers, like direct to streamers. Mm-hmm. And mid to low budget was, was used to pack movie theaters and used to like fill up the schedule. And now because the studios are only releasing in theaters their biggest movies, there's like a vacuum of programming for these, for even for AMC and bigger theater chains, but definitely for independent theater chains, there's like a vacuum of programming. And we're filling that vacuum with indie horror. Like a movie like Skinnamarink would never have gotten a theatrical release pre-COVID because, because, you know, since COVID, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, like all of these now max, like everyone's releasing their mid to low budget movies on streamers and not in theaters. And that's only creating room for indie horrors and independent films to like, fill that vacuum and and it's thriving i mean people are like i said every three months there's a new article that says like is horror back and it's like girl it never left you know (laughs) girl right girl please it never went away never went away so well i think we actually got pretty much all of our questions on the way andrew what do you got coming up in the pipeline yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, it's a great question. I just finished a movie that I just adore. I loved working on it. It's a horror anthology movie called Tenants. The reason it's called Tenants is because it takes place in one apartment building, and each segment in the anthology is a different apartment uh, unit. And oh, I could fuck with that. It's really, really <laughs> fun. That's cool. It's all written by a team, so it's not completely individual. Like it's not so that there's a, like a cohesive voice because all of the creatives kind of like gave notes and kind of wrote the the segments together and then they all directed it with the same cinematographer a really talented cinematographer named Ryan Valdez so it has the similar look and feel and then they hired me as the composer to score the entire thing instead of some anthologies maybe like we'll get a different cinematographer each segment and a different composer for each segment and it so that each segment stands as as its own thing this has the real natural feel of a feature film story because even the wraparound story is kind of like this mystery that eventually explains why these horrific things are happening in each apartment right Uh, so it's a really fun project and it's very like you know influenced by these kind of classic anthology tv series or like the twilight zone so i got to write Mm -hmm. some really classic goldsmith john williams you know 
James Horner, or I should say more traditional classic old Bernard Herrmann, old style film scoring techniques that was just so much fun to dive into. They're sending it around to a couple of film festivals now, but it's definitely going to be released somewhere, whether it's like Netflix or Amazon or Tubi or wherever it goes, it's definitely going to go somewhere and be distributed, probably even have a physical release. And I can't wait to get the soundtrack up on streaming and I'd like to put it out on CD. It's really Like when I say I just had a blast working on it because it was, you know, it was just a a great team of people to work with. And it was like all hands on deck. Let's make something fun and just go at it. Those are always my favorite projects. So it had a similar energy that drew me to Winnie the Pooh. Blood and Honey was just like, let's have fun. And I can always tell if we're having fun making it that hopefully people will pick up on that and soak it in and have fun watching it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can tell the difference. I just wanted to know, how did the Winnie the Pooh soundtrack become a Record Store Day exclusive for a physical release? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, I wanted to release it on vinyl, so I took it upon myself to start reaching out to record labels who release vinyls. And I had a couple of places that were really interested. And one of them, the one that I ended up choosing was Jake from Rusted Wave, an indie label. I think he's on the East Coast. But he and I had this like hour and a half long conversation. And I just knew that he was passionate and excited, but not only my music, but like the movie and the release and confident that it would do well. And therefore really all in about wanting to do it and not just like, yeah, we can release it and yeah we're kind of interested you know like you kind of feel people out and I, I always want to work with the person who's even if they're not the biggest label they're the most excited because I want to work with people who are excited about things and like passionate about things and that was Jake for me at Rusted Wave and it's the reason I like working with Wall from Howlin' Wolf Records I've released two CDs with him because he's passionate and cares about it he's not the biggest CD distributor you know biggest CD label for horror but yeah. but he's passionate and I trust him and respect him and love his enthusiasm and it's the same with Rusted Wave so uh, when Jake was telling me that he wanted to do it for Record Store Day I was all on board. That was really his kind of baby. I I don't know how he made it happen or if it's, you know, how hard it was, but he was like, I'm going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to get this out because I think it'll do well. And we're going to do a limited pressing for record store day. I think it's like 1600 or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's not a lot, but right, that's, uh, right. that makes it a collector's edition. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of special. That's really neat. So it, it really wasn't, had nothing to do with me. It was all Rusted Wave and they made that happen. And I'm just so grateful because it's my first vinyl release and it's like a check on my career bucket list item is to, to have a vinyl release of one of my soundtracks. So. Yeah, it's awesome. Like I was telling you earlier, like the one copy that I was able to get was because a friend found it in Massachusetts somewhere, like a bull moose. And he said that there was only one copy on the shelf when he got in there. Wow. And that's that's the one that I have. Now, I don't know how many they have, but I'm sure they had more than one. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, a real moment for me was going around to some of the LA record shops that I shop at and going in and saying, do you have any copies of this vinyl? Can I sign them for whoever buys them? So I signed, I think, five copies, five of the however. I don't know how many they had, but they had me sign five copies at Amoeba, which is like the biggest record store in L.A., and I went to his place called Licorice Pizza, and I said they only had one copy, uh, so they had me sign it. So whoever got the Licorice Pizza vinyl like has a signed copy, or maybe it's still sitting there. I don't know. Uh, but knows? it was just—it's yeah, thought- just such a joy. I mean, it's like this Winnie the Pooh movie, the way that it has really taken off 
was such a surprise to, I think we all knew it would take off, but not to the extent that it did. And I've just been trying to ride the wave with gratitude because, you know, even if this happens, like, you know, I'm very optimistic and I like to put positive energy out towards for my career and the people that I work with in their careers. I think this will happen to some of us more, but it might not happen again for another 10 years or something where we have a movie that is this big at this wide release worldwide in theaters for literal months. I mean, it was like it came out in February in America and by June it was playing in Japan. So like the theatrical release trickled slowly around the world so that it was like always playing somewhere. And I'm just trying not to take any of it for granted so that I just, you know, because it yeah, could just never cool even happen. Be, yeah. I mean, I could be working yeah. on streamers for the rest of my career and be and and still be grateful for that. Like this could be my this. I'm just trying to be realistic. Like this could be my only theatrical release. And that's just trying not to take any of it for granted, I guess is what I mean. Yeah, I saw the photos of you and that signing you did this, this past weekend. And I actually wanted to ask you, what where did this honeycomb violin come from? Yeah, the honeycomb violin. That's a great question. It's it's an interesting story. When I first signed on to the movie, you know, earlier we were talking about like me playing clay pots and, and ways that I can like have fun with the music that only you only if you know, then you know, you know, that I did that. But it's just a way for me to have fun and be playful. When I first signed on to the movie, I remembered a New Yorker article that I read about an experimental luthier. A luthier is someone who makes string instruments like guitars, violins, cellos, etc. So this guy's name is Tyler Thackeray. He goes on Instagram by Violin Torture. So definitely seek him out because he's like a mad scientist. But his whole shtick is this like performance art. He like cuts violins in half and like grills them on his like, you know, barbecue or whatever, you know, and then, wow. and then, and then reassembles them to see if it, the, the, the charred wood sounds different, you know, or like he made a cello out of a pumpkin for Halloween, for example, like just super fun stuff. And I love I love that mentality of like, taking something that's classical like my training is classical but i write horror music so i just love taking something that's this you know hundreds and hundreds of year tradition and then like just breaking it and rebuilding it and repurposing it and so anyways i read this article in like 2020 it's way long ago about him and one of the sentences that he said was, for example, I put a violin inside of a beehive just to see what would happen. And that was like, you know, that was just that was that was it. And it but it stuck out to me so that when I signed on to Winnie the Pooh, like I remembered and I looked him up on Instagram and I sent him a message that said like, hey, long time listener, first time caller type of thing. Whatever happened to that violin in the beehive? And he said, oh, shit, I forgot all about it. And at that point, <laughs> at that point, the be- the violin had been in the beehive for two whole years. Whoa. So I was like, well, can I, do you think I could maybe play it? Like at that point I was thinking it was just going to be like a violin filled with honey or something. And then I was going to have to put like tarps down in my studio and like wear a suit that would, like I would be dripping with honey and I'd get a few pictures out of it and that'd be fun, you know, for right. the Blu-ray or something or behind the scenes. I thought maybe at best it would be like a little trivia on IMDb, right? Sure. Um, and he was like, yeah, I guess. He was like, why don't I pull it out and see what it, see if it's even worth it? Because I'm in LA, he's in San Francisco. That's like a six hour drive. So 12 yeah. hour round trip. And I was like, no, don't touch it. Don't even, don't even look at it. Like I'm going to come up with my manager. We're going to film a little mini documentary on our phones. And if it's a bust, then I'll take you out to dinner. It'll be nice to meet you. And I will go home and, and I'll just keep writing the music. No big deal. You know, just the chance of it being cool 
and the chance of filming it coming out for the first time and being cool was worth it enough for me to do the trip. And I'm kind of glad that that he didn't because that's a really cool behind the scenes part of the Blu-ray. It's on my YouTube and it actually turned out to be even less of a gimmick than, you know, I thought it would just be like a cool looking violin, but it actually sounds different uh, than a normal violin because it has honeycomb on the inside. Wow. So he, yeah, I'm crazy. looking, I'm looking at like screenshots here of it. That thing looks wild. Yeah. I just looked at his Instagram and he has it. He opens it up and you can actually see bees inside. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. That's when we took it home. Yeah. <laughs> that's that crazy. Wild. So here's what the beehive sounds like. Oh, so it basically like I was like, can I play it on the soundtrack? And he, he gave it to me. So I still have it for the sequel if I'm working oh. on it. But here's what one beehive limb sounds like. <laughs> It has this nasally overtone kind of uncontrollable sound that it's just like kind of grinds as you play it with the bow. It doesn't sound yeah. like a normal violin, but the real magic happened when, as I do with my violin tracks, like I'll normally record one line and then like layer it like 16 times to get the full mm -hmm. violin section sound. And I started to do that with the beehive violin, but it didn't have the same quality as when I do it with a violin. It sounded... Right. Tell me what you guys think it sounds like, actually. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Sounds it sounds like, like bees. bees. Sounds like bees. Yeah, which is kind of cool. It's kind of cool. Sounds like a bee swarm. So you can hear it all over the, the, the soundtrack. Now that you've heard it that way, you can kind of pick it out. Pick it out right here. Did you hear it? Kind of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, definitely hear gonna, it. Listen for it. I'm going to listen just, to it tomorrow at work. <laughs> it's just chugging for it in the background of this section. It's just a texture. You know, it's not a melody. It's just like a texture buzzing in the background of a right, lot of sections. Right. It's all over the soundtrack. So I'm glad you asked me about that. Tyler is a mad genius. I have him working on uh, a new instrument for the sequel. If we work on it, we got a bear skull. And we are. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> is it, is it going to be a drum or something? We're making a cigar box style cello out of a oh bear skull. Oh, wow. Okay. I was just on the phone with him today talking about it because he also got coyote toe bones and he was on eBay. He's like, man, you're really messing up my eBay search because he, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> he found, he found somebody selling an assortment of animal teeth. So I was like, buy it. We'll make rattlers out of it. So we're just we're just using like the whole. This one is is uh, instead of bees, it's it's just like bones and teeth and real just nasty organic things. So yeah, the black bear cello is. We'll see how it turns out. We were kind of contemplating ways to where to add the bridge this morning and how to string it up and whether we'll use three strings or two strings and stuff like that. We were kind of talking about this morning. He's a mad scientist genius. I think everyone should look him up. Uh, he's really great. Yeah, and that's a violin. Uh, actually, I have it right here. It's a uh, yeah, violin torture. That's Everyone right, violin torture. Violin torture. Yeah, uh, I have. I see like a clip up on my screen right now. I'm on Nerdist, and I see one, and it has you with the honeycomb uh, violin, which is uh, so wild looking. I bet that thing just looks awesome on the wall too. Let alone playing it. Yeah, I keep it in a Tupperware so that it's kind of preserves. But uh, yeah, what, what, whatever oh, I'm done, you know, maybe after this one, I don't know, you know, whatever I'm 
no longer going to score a Winnie the Pooh horror movie, then I will definitely just like encase it in epoxy, like clear epoxy or something. I'll make it so that it just stays that way forever. But as right now, I want to keep being able to play it for if I need to. So I haven't really sealed it yet. But one of these days, it it gets sticky when you play it. Yeah, actually, it really messed up one of my violin bows. So I need to. I need to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Next up, you have to use like human hair, right? Like kind of like Winnie the Pooh did in uh, the whip. Yeah, that's a great Uh, idea. There you go. You human hair with the honeycomb violin. Perfect. There you go. There we go. I, I don't think anybody will object to that. No, I don't think so. No, I mean, I guess you, can you can go to any like salon, hair, yeah. right? You can go to any salon and be like, you know, you know what? I'll take that pile. Thanks. Make a bow out of it. That's a great idea. I'm going to yeah. text Tyler right now. There you go. <laughs> He'd probably be like, all right, yeah, I think we can make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that instrument. Yeah, it's going to be cool. That one's free. You can have that. Thank can, you. Can you even like predict what it might sound like? No. Um, well, because it's going to be a plug-in, so it's not, it's not like an acoustic cello. We're going to probably send oh, yeah. it through some effects. But I think, you know, to me, the skull is just the resonating chamber. And however that might affect the skull cavity being what resonates the sound is interesting. I don't think it's necessarily like, you know, going to sound vastly different from a cello. I don't know, though. You know, I didn't think that about the beehive violin either. I didn't think it was going to sound that different from a violin, and it did. So yeah. I'm very interested to see, you know, I kind of, the thing that excites me about working with Tyler is like, he's so out there with his ideas and we kind of just go off each other with like, Oh, what about this? What about this? Like he has the mouth open and he's putting strings between the teeth of the top and the bottom part of the jaw. Okay. So that I can play those like a harp or something. I don't know. It's just, we'll see what it sounds like. Uh, he just thinks of things I never would have thought of. And that is exciting for me to collaborate. I have a couple of people who have collaborated with on instruments. There's somebody, there's a guy in France who builds piezo microphones for me and man, he makes the coolest stuff. And it's just, I'll never ever not sing their praises because they're geniuses and I love, they make my work more fun and they have fun making things for me for my music. And it's like, you know, that's, that's the lesson I learned from all the interviews and stuff that I watched of Hans Zimmer, where it's just like, bring in somebody who is an expert in their field and collaborate with them and it will make your music better. So long as you don't, it's just get rid of the ego of being like, I made it all myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Bring in like the best cellist in the world. And then like, it's going to be amazing. Bring in the best vocalist, bring in somebody to design a brand new instrument and sing their praises and like, you know, let them come along on the journey. If there's no ego, it's just fun and joy and like making music together. So everyone should follow Violin Torture. Tyler's a genius. And I'm blessed to work with him. He's really, he's fun too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'll have to follow Violin Torture on TikTok and all that stuff because I got to see that's like, that's some wild stuff. Yeah. I think hear. Instagram is where he's the most active, but he does, he is on TikTok. I don't think he's on Twitter or Facebook. He might be. I don't know. But definitely Instagram is where he posts the most and is the most active. Oh, for sure. I already yeah, gave I him a that. follow. Nice. Oh, thanks, Corey. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Andrew, I don't think we'll take up more of your time today. Thank you so much for the in-depth interview. We got you way longer than uh, we initially expected. So that was really nice of you to stick with us. My this pleasure, whole time. guys. We My had pleasure. A, we had a blast talking with you. We'd love to have you back on again sometime if you know, you're available. But yeah, we'll talk more about that. Maybe that's something we can do again down the line. Sounds good, thought, guys. No, this is so much fun. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, thanks so much for sp- spending almost 
almost two hours with us today. My pleasure, guys. Appreciate it so much. Yeah, we're gonna have to call ourselves 120 screams or less. <laughs> That's why I think <laughs> this episode is called 30 screams or more. You know, it's very very easy. Exactly. Renaming 30, this one. Yeah, we're naming renaming this 30 screams or more. I like it, Andrew. So, <laughs> Andrew, thank you again for sticking with us. The intro and outro to this episode and episodes going forward is created by Andrew Scott Bell. So definitely check out Andrew on all streaming platforms. And if you can, pick up the Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey vinyl wherever it is. If you see it in your travels, just grab it because it's awesome. So, uh, Andrew... Where can people find you on social media if they want to give you a follow? Yeah, absolutely. On every handle, every platform, it's the same handle. It's at Andrew Scott Bell. On Instagram and TikTok, it's the one with the check mark. And on X and Twitter, I kind of refuse to pay for it. So you'll just have to find me there without a check mark. But it's all, even YouTube and Facebook, it's all at Andrew Scott Bell. Like Instagram.com slash Andrew Scott Bell. Facebook.com slash Andrew Scott Bell. So it's real easy to find me. You can also just Google me if you want. There you go. <laughs> Easy enough. Got to keep it consistent. Yeah. Just all the way through Andrew Scott Bell across the board, everyone. Be sure to follow him on all platforms because why not? It takes a second. So um, everyone, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Threads. Leave us a five-star review on all podcast platforms so we can get some more exposure. Of course, be sure to tell your friends. We're also part of the Shining Wizards Network. Be sure to visit ShiningWizardsNetwork.com. They're an awesome podcast network ranging from wrestling to heavy metal to horror and all that stuff. So check that out. Also visit 30screensoless.com for all previous episodes and transcripts to go with those episodes. And if there's anything you want us to review, send an email to 30 screams or less at gmail.com or hit us up on social media use that hashtag 30 screams or less and we'll talk that way and as of course buy our merch damn it please i like i don't know i like to mess around with that andrew but no everyone please buy our merch we got all sorts of awesome stuff up on our website if you go to the store section we got hats mugs ridiculous denim jackets that if you buy Corey will eat his hat all this no, good won't. stuff no you won't <laughs> <laughs> well anyways buy it we have server costs. buy the merch buy the merch buy the merch buy the merch all right everyone i'm steve i'm Corey. thanks for listening to 30 screams ls and don't forget to drink your beans 